Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode 147, Nicholas Hacken, Experts and the Attorney-Client Privilege. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Nick Hacken. Nick is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Legal Studies at Temple University and an associate at Wilson Sonsini. Nick's research focuses on the attorney-client privilege and white-collar crime, and he teaches a course on the detection of financial crimes. Our podcast today features Nick's new article, Clarifying the Covell Conundrum, which was published recently in the Drexel Law Review. In it, Nick looks at the extension of the attorney-client privilege to cover experts and other consultants that are frequently used by attorneys and their clients. The problem is a rather intuitive one. Attorneys obviously don't work by themselves, but rather have a team of support staff and experts and other consultants in order to provide high-quality legal advice. If these supporting actors were not covered by the attorney-client privilege, then their use would effectively be chilled. At the same time, there's the old adage that the legal system is entitled to every person's evidence. Without evidence, the legal system obviously can't reach accurate verdicts, which is why privileges are typically construed narrowly. And extending the privilege to everyone touched by an attorney would quickly starve the legal system of the evidence and witnesses that it needs. The result is the conundrum that Nick tees up in his article. How should we treat experts used by attorneys, and when should they, and when should they not, be protected by the privilege? Nick, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. Your article is, of course, about the limits of the attorney-client privilege and specifically whether the privilege extends beyond attorneys to the experts that are used by the attorneys and their clients. So set the stage in broad brush for us. In what context is this question important? What kind of experts are we talking about? And why might it be important to extend something as powerful as the attorney-client privilege to these experts? Great question. This principle of extending the attorney-client privilege to experts, the case that the article focuses on, United States versus Covell, was in the context of an accountant in a criminal tax case. But the implications of this doctrine can extend far beyond. This has been applied to psychiatrists, even to PR firms, and a variety of other types of experts in different contexts. So while the principle here is focused on the accountant, which provides its own unique challenges because of tax advice and tax return preparation and things like that, this principle has applied beyond the realm of financial crime, where I specialize, into all forms of civil litigation and a variety of other contexts. 
So the article, as you suggest, centers around uh, United States versus Covell, which is an old Second Circuit case. And from your article, what I learned to be basically the starting point for all discussions about extending the attorney-client privilege in this context. Can you tell us a little bit more about that case? You said that it involves an accountant. And how does the doctrine set up around that case? Sure. So as you said, this was a case coming out of the 60s. I think the conduct actually happened in the 1950s. So we are dating ourselves a little bit, but this case is still frequently cited. And the story is a pretty good one, too. So Louis Covell was an accountant. He formerly worked for the IRS, but then when he went into private practice, he was hired, I believe, by a law firm. One of the law firm's clients became the subject of a grand jury investigation. And as part of the preparation, the law firm and Mr. Covell were working with the client to prepare the defense. At some point, the assistant United States attorney investigating into the client actually subpoenaed Mr. Covell and forced him to testify before the grand jury. Covell refused, and after receiving some threats and prods from both the prosecutor and the court, was actually held in contempt. And his argument was that because he was an employee of the law firm, that all of his communications with the client were protected by the attorney-client privilege. So Covell's held in contempt, and um, they immediately file an interlocutory appeal up to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit reverses and says that, in fact, Covell's work is covered by the attorney-client privilege. And so we get this now infamous opinion by Judge Friendly, where he lays out the contours of this attorney-client expert privilege. And my paper focuses on a section of the opinion where Judge Friendly lays out four different hypotheticals about different situations where an expert can become involved with an attorney-client relationship and how that privilege extends. And I can briefly walk through those because that's kind of the layout of the doctrine. So the first one is probably the most obvious, and it's also the most narrow. It's what I and courts and scholars have come to call the narrow approach, which is Judge Friendly hypothesized a scenario where a client doesn't speak English and needs a translator in order to communicate with the attorney. So in this hypothetical, the translator is the expert. The first scenario that Judge Friendly laid out is where the attorney sends his client to speak to a translator. The translator writes down literally what the client said and reports that back to the attorney. So that's the literal translation scenario. And under this hypothetical scenario, there's really nothing aside from literal translation. There's no input from the expert. The second and third scenarios, really briefly, just focus on whether the client is the individual who finds the translator and brings them to the relationship or the attorney. But it's that fourth scenario that you mentioned, Ed, where things get the most interesting, which is where the attorney sends the client to the translator to speak to the expert, but then the attorney tells the translator to use your judgment and get a summary and impart your own expertise into the situation and report all of that back to me to help inform my ability to provide legal advice. And this is kind of what blows the door open for experts to do more than just simply interpret or translate materials and actually allows them to provide more of a, I'd say, a useful and substantive form of expert advice. And it's from that scenario and the contrast between that first hypothetical, which is translation only, and the fourth scenario, 
That's what I've called the Covell conundrum. And that's what courts have been wrestling with ever since. And so in the intervening 50 years, Covell being from the 60s, what have courts done with the doctrine? So under the modern way that we think about these things, does the attorney-client privilege extend to statements of the expert? And is it just the narrow version, which is translation only, or is it broader than that? So courts in the intervening years have gone both directions. Some have made the narrow approach too narrow to be useful. Other courts have made the broad approach too extreme and have led to the protection of too much stuff. And so we find ourselves in a situation where, depending on where you're litigating, you could find yourself under different rules when it comes to this. So the majority of courts seem to follow this narrow approach. And even as recent as this year, there was a case in SDNY where the privilege was rejected under Covell because the court found that the third-party expert wasn't just translating, right? And so a lot of courts have honed in on that language, translating or purely interpreting information and relaying that interpretation to the lawyer. So some courts are very strict about that interpretation, whereas some other courts there was a case in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, my hometown, last year where it was an insurance matter and the language was much softer. So the court was much more willing to say if this helped the attorney facilitate their ability to provide legal advice and kind of some of the formalities were followed, which we can talk about, then this communication is protected. So it has gone both ways, even as recently as the 2020s. So it seems pretty clear that you're not in support of the narrow approach. And the narrow approach does, in fact, seem a bit formalistic and a bit unrealistic, given how attorneys do need to find information and expertise in other places. But you also, in your paper, suggest that the broad approach also has its problems. So tell us a little bit more about that. So why is it, in some ways, a Goldilocks problem where you have the narrow approach being too narrow and the broad approach being too broad. So I think that the narrow approach is too narrow. I think the easiest example and kind of what really hit home for me was thinking about the translation scenario that Judge Friendly posits in Covell itself. You know, in my day-to-day -day life, I do a lot of work where we're translating documents and translating interviews with witnesses from other countries. And even when someone is translating, there is judgment involved. A literal translation of text from another language without the interpretation of the fact that it's a native speaker speaking that and there's certain implications, intonations, things like that, that is, in my opinion, the subjective expertise of an expert. And so even in the most restrictive scenario of a translator, I think it's just, as you said, unrealistic to think that an expert could not be injecting their expertise. So that is my opinion as to why the narrow approach is too narrow as to why the broad approach can be a little too broad. I think it just goes back to the principle of the attorney-client privilege, which is it should be as limited as possible because truth-seeking is obviously the goal and this privilege isn't a prohibition on that. So let me push you a little bit on why you think the broad approach might be a problem. So the broad approach normally says that the attorney-client privilege will extend to all experts that in some way facilitate a lawyer's provision of legal advice. And 
you might be concerned that extending it in this way would allow attorneys to just become conduits, or at least the experts would become conduits for protecting information, that you would just use this as an excuse to extend the privilege in very, very broad ways. But it seems to me that courts often deal with these issues already. Anytime you have an attorney that is behaving in both a legal role and a business role, you face this problem, whether or not you should extend the attorney-client privilege to what the attorney is doing and what the attorney is communicating. So it seems like we already have structures for dealing with this. And so if you move to a broad approach, it would seem that this would not be as big of a problem as one might think. So I agree, Ed. I think that's a great point, that the broad approach is definitely where I think the doctrine should go. The one issue that I've seen through the case law is just that once courts are willing to move away from the strict translation approach, that narrow approach we just discussed, there hasn't really been a principled methodology of administering that. And so from a clarity standpoint, I think that's where courts now should be focusing their efforts. And that's why I piggyback on Professor DiStefano's nexus test in my article. So tell us a little bit more about this nexus test and how does it provide a principle for determining the limits of the attorney-client privilege? Sure. So the core of this test, or maybe the ethos or thesis behind it, is to have a strong nexus between that consultant's services and the legal advice ultimately provided to the client. And so this nexus, there were four factors that Professor DiStefano laid out. And in brief, they are first, an analysis of the lawyer's skill in the area where the expert is being retained. Second, the way that the communication was handled and conducted between these three parties. Third, which is the source of a lot of practical advice amongst lawyers on the internet, is the contemporaneous proof of the assertion of the privilege between the attorney and the expert. And the last one is the substance of the law involved, right? So if we have a situation where we're dealing with complex tax law, where even getting to a legal theory requires that expertise, would be treated a little bit differently than say, a typical breach of contract case or something like that. So that's the foundation of Professor DiStefano's nexus test. And you propose some amendments to this test. So how does your approach differ from her proposal? I wouldn't say that it's much of a strong difference. I think it's a fantastic idea. I just wanted to add a couple more factors that I thought would help courts in standardizing this process and making some of the correct judgments when they're evaluating these kinds of scenarios. And my two additions are for courts to analyze the level of independent analysis. I kind of want them to take that judge-friendly original question about, is it more of a literal translation or is it more of a expert opinion? Because I think that could be relevant in certain scenarios. And more importantly, I think the second addition, which is the question about the dual purpose, whether it's more business versus legal advice. That was not listed as an express part of the nexus test. And I think it really should be because that kind of is the main guiding principle in this scenario. I think that most Covell situations is the tension between those two ideas of legal versus business advice. And it's exactly what you mentioned in the earlier question about 
courts are already doing this with lawyer communications, and so this is a natural extension. So let's talk a little bit more about the independent analysis piece, which I think is actually rather interesting. I think that factor comes out of a belief that if an attorney has assistants who are helping the attorney prepare materials, there you don't really have independent analysis. And all of those employees are effectively agents of the attorney, and therefore the privilege should apply to them. And experts who are independent and exercising independent judgment, they should not fall under the privilege unless there's some reason to do that. And so I think what you're saying is that you want to preserve that particular distinction, although I can also see that maybe that's not that important, that an attorney should be able to get independent expertise. I guess that's the whole point of having an expert. And so therefore, maybe that's not that important for a nexus test? Well, I think it's relevant. I don't know if it's necessarily dispositive, but you could see the situation where if we were taking my two additions to the nexus test and we were kind of imagining them on the scales of justice, weighing these things, if the communication was very heavily weighted on the expert's knowledge, right? It was not very much of a literal translation of accounting records. It was a synthesis of things, a development of a business plan based on those records and a going forward plan for the business based on records. You'd see how it is both a lot of that expert's knowledge and it has a very, very strong business purpose. So I would say when you see those two factors both leaning away from the things that underline the basis of the attorney-client privilege, then the situation would get a little bit closer for a court to decide. When it's that expert's analysis that is driving maybe a secondary business decision, and if that secondary business decision starts to become the primary objective, you could see that the nexus would start leaning against protecting those communications, even though ostensibly they're happening in the kind of scenario where the privilege would apply. Yeah, I think I can see the intuition that's driving your desire to add these two factors there. Here's an extension for you. So my impression is that Covell and your paper are primarily focused on experts in largely a transactional or perhaps a non-litigation context. Maybe this Covell itself involved litigation, but there's a kind of tax transactional element to it. What about experts used in litigation in a sort of more general sense? So under your framework, would conversations with litigation experts basically always be privileged? And the context in which I'm raising this question is that in the expert witness literature, particularly with toxic torts and other kinds of complex litigation, one of the allegations is that parties will often hire multiple experts and then basically offer the experts that render positive opinions and then suppress the ones that offer negative ones, which results in obvious distortions to the evidence that's presented at trial. Any thoughts on this problem and whether or not your framework or the Covell framework relates to this problem? So in my line of work of government investigations and white collar crime, that specific issue doesn't typically come up, right? The government has their own experts and 
we're not really sharing. We don't get the FBI's accountants and they don't want ours. But I think to your general point, in the litigation context, I do see, I maybe wouldn't want to say everything, but the vast majority of these conversations being privileged. And it would be situations which are not that far off from the work that I do every day, which is we're consulting clients that are being investigated and ongoing compliance is an issue, right? What's the going forward world look like? How do we prevent future issues like that? And we start getting into those complicated questions of, well, is that a business decision or a legal decision? So I think this is very strong in the litigation and investigation context, but to your specific question, I have not thought about whether the intentional amassing of experts for the suppression purpose would be permissible or not. But under the doctrine, at least under the framework of my paper and what Professor Stefano has done, I don't see any way around that. Final question for you. What's next for you on this project or otherwise? So an interesting recent development that I think is spawning some ideas in my mind, which I footnoted in the paper, was the Supreme Court took up another case involving a grand jury issue around dual purpose communications, right? So this issue that we were just talking about between communications that have both business and legal purposes, and there's a big circuit split. So some circuits, including the DC circuit, are using the significant purpose test. Other circuits are looking at the primary purpose, and we don't need to get into the details between that, but suffice it to say there's a circuit split. So the Supreme Court last year actually took the case up. It was fully briefed. It was argued. And then in January of this year, they actually said that cert was improperly granted and have left the circuit split to linger longer. So I'm probably not the first person to think about this as a possible paper topic, but this dovetails very closely to this idea of the Covell doctrine, and it seems like a very interesting place for research and my day job. <laughs> so between those two things, that'll keep me playing busy. Well, Nick, thanks for taking the time to talk to us today about the attorney-client privilege and how it applies to experts on a legal team. Great uh, having you on the show. Thank you so much, Ed. I suppose that it's not at all surprising that Covell has indeed proven to be a conundrum for the courts. Determining the proper scope of a privilege is almost always a tricky endeavor. After all, the attorney-client privilege doesn't mean very much if an attorney needs outside expertise and her communications with the expert are not protected. On the other hand, playing fast and loose with the privilege will lead to certain abusive behavior and take away a lot of valuable evidence from courts. What I do find somewhat surprising is that the majority rule seems to interpret Covell narrowly, taking the foreign language translator or interpreter as the model. Clearly, the translator should fall under the privilege, but surely the privilege extends further than that. Modern attorneys need all kinds of expertise and staff support, and not everyone in that office can be an attorney nor would we really want everyone to be an attorney if we want to have efficient legal services. So it seems that Michelle Stefano's nexus approach makes perfect sense. As long as the expert, consultant, or staff member has a significant nexus with the provision of legal services under an attorney, 
then the privilege should extend. Anything else to me seems anachronistic and pretends that we are still back in the days of solo practitioners who are a one-stop shop. Although it isn't part of Nick's article, I worry, though, about Covell's implications for testifying experts. Testifying experts, to me, seem cut from a slightly different cloth. Their role is not just to assist the attorney and the client, but rather they operate arguably in a sort of meta space between advocate and officer of the court. Or I should perhaps say that one of the fundamental problems with the modern expert witness is that we treat them as pawns in the adversarial process rather than something different. As I mentioned in the discussion with Nick, privileging the opinions of potentially testifying experts can lead to selection bias in what courts see, something that has long been noted by scholars such as David Bernstein and Edith Beardson. And so while it seems to me that Nick is right, that Covell should be interpreted more broadly going forward, I'd add the caveat that extensions of the attorney-client privilege for non-testifying experts should not necessarily apply to testifying ones. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Texas A&M University School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Madeline DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Renee Hawkins and Tammy Pierce, and background music is provided by Kirsten Castle Greer, Felix Wong, and Alex Crew. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.